Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 3 in particular. Ministers get tired and weary. They get discouraged. Christians get tired and weary and discouraged. Delays to prayer. Disappointment with life. The slowness of uh, progress, perhaps in church life, perhaps in your own growth and godliness, perhaps in the slowness that God seems to be working in the lives of people that you desperately want him to work in. And life is demanding and it's draining and all sorts of problems arise and discouragement comes easily. And we need to know how to cope. What do we do? I want us to take encouragement from Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to think first of all about the problem of weariness. The writer to the Hebrews says at the end of verse 3, So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm glad that's there. Because here is a real problem for God's real people. We're told in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 that no problem has seized us except, no testing has seized us except what is common. And sometimes we might think, well, we're, we're the only one who's weary or we're the only one who's on the point of giving up. But no, here's a common issue for God's people. There are times, maybe it's only for half a day or maybe it's for half a year or maybe it's for half a lifetime that you could feel weary and giving up losing heart what makes us weary in the Christian life what brings us to that point of giving up or that point of reining in our expectations and thinking well I'm not going to hope big that God will fill this building and we'll need to get a new one I'm not going to hope big that Milford building will be filled. I'm not going to hope big that God will save all of my family. I'm not going to expect him to work and bring many in our town to Jesus. I'm just going to pull it back and settle for a lot less. What makes that happen? Um, What makes us want to pray safe? sometimes, Sometimes I've been in places... Uh, and and it's meant with the, the, the best will in the world, but maybe before some evangelistic events, someday I'll pray. And Lord, we pray that you would give us one. Give us one, Lord. Even one tonight, there will be rejoicing in heaven. Give us one. I'm thinking, oh, you know, give us ten. Give us fifty. Never mind one. You know. Uh, and I... I can't comment on that person's motivation, but I know that when I feel tempted to pray like that, it's because I'm reining in my expectations. I'm safeguarding myself from what I feel might be disappointment. Disappointed hopes, unanswered prayers, 
for loved ones. That wearies us. The smallness of our congregations. The lack of impact that we seem to have on our town and county. We're tired fighting a particular temptation. We're tired failing. Or maybe just tired, physically tired. That plays a massive part in it. Uh, just family life and its burdens. Farming life and its burdens. Never mind what other sort of burdens come our way. The stress that we have to face at work or at home or in our health week in, week out can make us weary. Keeping going with sickness and poor health can make us weary. Increased opposition, the way the world's going. And we, we, we see the Christian position that we love being attacked and misrepresented and vilified over and over again. And you just say, I can't, I can't keep sticking my head above the parapet. I don't want to keep uh, taking these blows. And, and maybe we're not taking them personally, but we read stuff in the papers and it's as if we're being slapped in the face because what we value is being trodden on. You know, the word that's used here for weary means exhausted to the point of giving up. It means utterly spent. And to lose heart is the idea of, of just giving up. Her heart's not in it anymore. And this, this book is written about 30 to 35 years after Christ's resurrection. Um, perhaps Peter and Paul have been executed, one crucified, one beheaded. Persecution is on the rise, and we, we got a flavor of that um, in chapter 10, where in the early days of their faith, they, uh, they had their property confiscated. Uh, they joyfully accepted that. Some of them were imprisoned, and uh, that was part of life for them. They were meeting in people's houses. There was a far cry from the temple and its glory and splendor and its sacrifices. And those early years, there must have been great hope. But then the persecution's gone on and on and on. And the smallness has gone on and on. And Christ's promised return hasn't happened. Another year has passed. And they're still saying, and Christ is going to come back. Well, you've been saying that for 35 years. Where is he? The worldwide spread of the gospel. Well, it's slowly getting there. But Paul, the great world missionary, has been imprisoned, if not executed. You look at people who used to sit in the seat beside you in church. And they've stopped coming. They've given up. Some of them have gone back to the synagogue. Back to Judaism. Some of them are giving up meeting together. Some who had lost their jobs and had their property confiscated and were okay at the start. That was okay at the start. But after decades, it's really wearing them down. Where is this return? Where is this worldwide spread of the gospel? How will people believe if we're so small? Does that sort of thing sound familiar? Well, that's the circumstances of these early Christians. Whenever the writer here talks about running the race set before them, he uses a word that even in Greek, you'll get the sense of what sort of a race it is. 
The agona. That's where we get our word agony from. It's, a, it's not a little sprint, but it's, it's a race that leaves you drained. Your lungs are bursting. Your heart is going so hard that you don't think it can maintain that rate anymore. Your legs won't move. You just want to lie collapsed on the ground. It's an agony. You know, that's what he's saying the Christian life is like. It's hard going. So that's the description in Scripture. It's not always like that, but that's part of what it can be like. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when there are times when we feel weary in the Christian life, when there are times we feel like throwing in the towel. We shouldn't throw in the towel, but we shouldn't be surprised that we feel like it. That's part of, in a sense, everyday Christianity. The second thing we see here is the writer doesn't just depress us all like that. He encourages us. Well, I think it's encouraging to know that weariness and losing heart is part and parcel of the Christian life. So we're not shocked by it, but he goes on to give us encouragement amidst the weariness. How do you encourage an athlete you know, the last couple of years I've gone out uh, to, to watch the race. Um, you don't want to see what madness looks like. Go and watch the race. Uh, I think it's in early March. And you have people, you know, they run a half marathon from Garton uh, to Remelton. They get into kayaks and they kayak round to Rathmullen. Then they get on bikes and ride round, um, uh, what is it? They, they, they ride round the... the, the coast road there and then the, uh, they come up past Loch Salt that's usually where I go and they're absolutely blithered they're coming up Loch Salt and the winds in their faces and you know you're wanting to encourage them they're not even I think they're maybe halfway that's it. they then go down and they climb up Muckish and down Muckish they get on their bikes and they cycle away out round bloody foreland and they get off at Dukery and they run another marathon back in um, how do you encourage people like that? I think you send for men in white coats. Is what you do, but um, you, know, you say, yeah, you know, well, you don't say when they're in lock stall. You don't say you're nearly there because <laughs> they're miles from being nearly there. But what I would be going to take photographs up near Lock Salt. You're, you're, you're nearly at the top of this hill. Keep going. It's just over that rise, and it's downhill for about the next five miles. You know, keep going. Um, Say, you can do it. Um, or if it was in another sort of a race, maybe going up the side of Muckish or coming down it, you could say to somebody who's just standing with their hands on their knees, unsteady, and they say, here, take my arm. Lean on me. We'll get there. Come on. And the writer here says to, to these Christians, says, here's three things to encourage you. He doesn't challenge them first off. Although there's challenge here. But he says, here's the encouragement. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. There's the witnesses. They're there to encourage us. These witnesses are not spectators. These are athletes who have already finished the race. They are standing at the finish line along the side of the course. And unlike spectators who haven't a notion about what it takes to participate in the race, these are athletes who have run it and know what it's like. 
And they're there and they're saying, come on, keep going. The writer has spoken about many of them. But look back over chapter 11. I love what the writer has done here. Yes, he's picked some giants of the faith. He's picked Abraham and Noah and Moses and Enoch. You might think to yourself, ah, but those men were legends. Of course they finished the race. That's like, uh, you know, running the 10K and there's Mo Farah uh, at the side going, come on, you can do it. You think, hi, it's fine for you to say you can do it. You know, you're the Olympic champion. I'm not. But look who else he lists. He lists Jacob, the deceiver, who failed over and over again as a follower of God. Rahab, with her background and baggage. Gideon, timid and fearful. Barak, so fearful that he wouldn't go and attack the enemy and Deborah had to do it in his place. Samson, all his womanizing ways and his flaws. Jephthah and his foolish oath that he made. Rash. David. Now these are flawed. These are, this is a gallery of flawed, weak believers. You know, what's, what, what, what I've noticed and I've come to enjoy is that he could have picked so many near-perfect individuals. You'll understand what I mean by near-perfect. Daniel. Um, Joseph. Um, Ruth. Hannah, Job, people about whom very few flaws are recorded, if any. Not saying they were perfect, but some of them. You know, Daniel, no flaws are recorded. He could have filled his gallery with those sorts of people. But I think he's deliberately not picked them, but he's picked people who were flawed. People like you and people like me, who with all their brokenness and baggage, made it to the end. And now they're at the side going, you can do it. You can do it. Um, Joanna McCausland, Joanna Carroll's husband, Grant, uh, was talking to me about swimming before I really got into swimming uh, in a big way. And he said, oh, it's easy, it's easy. You know, if you can swim one mile, you can swim four or five. I thought, yeah, yeah, that's fine for you to say, Grant. You are an exceptional swimmer. I thought, there's no way that could happen. Uh, for me and then one day in the pool I was talking to another man and I got talking to him and he said "Ah, sign up and do this event sign up and do this six mile event I'm going to have a go at it I thought you? well if you think you can do it I can jolly well have a good crack at it because you're just like me oh that is part of what I think is going on in Hebrews here People just like you and me. The race can be completed. This agony. And that's one of the great advantages of reading Christian biography. We see people like us. Um, That's why it's good to read not those flowery Christian books that that, 
uh, where people seem to have no faults and everything's perfect, but to read ones about people who really struggle, who have real jealousies and real frustrations and real hurts, and to see that. The witnesses. The second strand of encouragement is the winner. Verse 2. Someone has run this race. He was the lead runner. In fact, it's as if this race was through a jungle. And he ran with a machete in hand, clearing the way for us, hacking his way through the jungle. He was the pioneer of our faith, we're told. That's what the, the phrase author is sometimes translated. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He made it possible. He cut out the course. He has cleared the way. And he has made it, and he has sat down. And the writer says, look at him and be encouraged. Because the way he ran, the things that he relied on, are the things that we can rely on too. The joy to come. The joy that was set before him. He looked at that. And then that enabled him to keep on going. And he says to us, the joy that is to come is worth the struggle now. And he knows because he has already had the joy. He's enjoyed the joy and he's running towards it to to reclaim it as it were. To re-experience it. And he looks over his shoulder to us who've never experienced it. And he says, I want you to know it's worth it. It is worth it. And the joy to come enabled him to look at the, the shame and the difficulties and to scorn them. Now that takes some doing. But how do you scorn something? You scorn something when you consider it not worth thinking about. Somebody uh, says something to you and you turn and walk away uh, and they, they sense your scorn. You haven't even considered either their viewpoint or their insult. It's just beneath you. It's not worthy of consideration. And what the writer here is saying is that's how Jesus dealt with with his circumstance. Now think about it. The betrayal, the false accusations, the beatings, the stripping, the nailing to a cross, the ridicule, the mockery, the taunting. He kept his eyes fixed on what was coming. And it's as if he didn't even consider what was being done or what was being said. It wasn't worth his serious attention. And I think that's often our problem. We think about and mull over and replay and immerse ourselves and talk and rehash about all the negative things that are happening in our lives. Now the athlete who focuses on his tiredness and he focuses on the, the, the cramp just in the, the ball of his calf or in the, the, the arch of his foot, starts to think about it. That athlete is going to give up. The athlete 
who rises above that and runs on. He doesn't think about how tired they are. He doesn't think about how many more miles they've still got to go. That's the athlete who keeps running and keeps going. I think this is incredible insight into Jesus. He scorned the shame and the taunts and the the cries to give up and come down off the cross. And he scorned the misunderstanding of his friends. How hard must that have been to see his friends run, to see his mother looking at him and John beside her looking at him as if he was defeated. And it's not that he scorned them. He scorned that misunderstanding. He scorned the mockery that was going on. I'm not going to focus on this because, well, humanly speaking, it might have got him down. But he fixed his eyes on the joy that was to come and he endured. He endured. It wasn't a walk in the park, but he put up with it. And look at what he put up with. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. And all that says to us, it is worth it. It is worth it. I did this for you. Don't give up now. And he's seated on the podium. And there's a place for you on the winner's rostrum. So be encouraged by looking at the winner. But if all Jesus was was the winner, that would be really discouraging. Verse 2 tells us something else about him. He's not just the winner. He's the worker. Jesus is not just on the podium. He's beside you in the race. He's the author and finisher of faith. He started faith in your life and he's going to finish the story of faith in your life came across a lovely illustration of this um, recently. Um, November of last year, uh, early in a race, uh, a girl um, in an American school race, uh, it was a cross-country race, felt her legs feeling heavy and her chest tightening. She realized she was falling behind. She said, said, I'm not wanting this hard enough. I have to keep fighting Gracie. Her name was Gracie uh, butcher Um, but as Gracie approached the finishing line she staggered and fell face forward to the ground she pulled herself up staggered and fell again and again and again her mother's watching it and and there's a a rope uh, uh, fence stopping her from going over to her daughter she wanted to run to her daughter but the crowd were saying to her if you go and help her she'll be disqualified and uh, so she didn't Uh, She didn't go to help her and Gracie continued to struggle and fall and struggle and fall. And then as other runners, and you can watch it on on the internet, other runners are running past and she's staggering like a drunk person. And then this girl, Leanna Blomgren, uh, is coming running past, approaching the finishing line and sees Gracie stagger and fall. And she says, I knew she wasn't going to get to the finish line by herself. I knew that she needed someone and nobody else was there for her. So Leanna bent down and pulled Gracie to her feet, supported her weight, and they crossed the line together. Gracie said she didn't remember much about the end of the race, but she'll never forget Leanna telling her, just as she lifted her, she says, you're with me 
I've got you. You're with me. I've got you. And actually for that act of sportsmanship, she was disqualified. Um, Which makes it all the more impressive. But we have a saviour who comes alongside us in the race and says, you're with me, I've got you. He's not just an example. He's an enabler. He will get you to the finish. Is that great moment? Uh, maybe you saw it in the news where the Brownlee brothers, uh, two British triathletes, are coming to a finishing line and, and um, Johnny Brownlee starts to wobble and stagger. And his brother Alistair, uh, forsaking passing him and taking a better position in the race, uh, second place, uh, Silver, um, he grabs his brother, puts his arm around him, and he runs with him to the finishing line. As he comes to the finish, he actually throws him over the finishing line in front of him so that he could have second place. We have this sort of a saviour. He's the perfecter of faith. Philippians, Paul puts it this way, He who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Here's our encouragement. There are other Christians, flawed, weak, fragile believers like us, lining the track, saying, you can do it. You can do it. Look, I did it. There's our Savior on the winner's podium saying, look, I can tell you that what's in store for you is worth it. And there's our Savior beside us in the muck of life, putting his arm round us and putting his shoulder to the burden and saying, you're with me. I've got you. Let's keep going. The encouragement amidst weariness. And then thirdly, our response to weariness. The response to weariness. It's not enough, you know, you go out to the race uh, and you, you encourage these athletes as they uh, go up muckish and down muckish and hammer along on the bike. And uh, it's not enough that, they're in, that we encourage them. They actually need to dig deep and respond to the encouragement. And that's what we need to do. It's not enough to just hear this. We need to respond And the writer has three calls to action. First of all, he says, keep your focus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, verse 2. Then verse 3, consider him. Fix your eyes on him. Consider him. Our problem is that so many things crowd in on us that we have our focus on the things that are right here in front of us. The school run, the shopping, the laundry, the fact the washing machine's broken down again. I've got this appointment to go to and that appointment to go to and the results of that appointment weren't good and there's bother at the mart and the, 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 the sheep are broken out again and I've been up five nights in a row helping sheep give birth and I've lost every lamb yet and those problems are right here in front of us. 
And we take our eyes off our Savior. We take our eyes off our God on the throne and it's understandable at one level. And the writer says, bring your eyes back. And he calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus. That means we've got to deliberately pull our attention away from the things that are right in front of us and to fix our eyes on Jesus. As we thought this morning, the good shepherd and all his supplies and his kingly rule over every event. We have to fix our eyes on him. We've got to fix our eyes on him and all that he endured for us so that we'll keep going. We're to consider, he says. Consider, that means to weigh up. Compare. Compare all that he went through and what he calls us to go through. Look at who he is and what he's done and what he will do. That takes work to refocus it's hard. But we've got to do it. We've got to put effort into that. How encouraging for us as a church to know that by, when we refocus on Jesus, we realize he didn't do all that so that the work of the gospel would peter out and grind to a halt in Ireland. He didn't do all that for me as an individual so that I would flounder and stumble and not make it to the end. I fix my eyes on him. I'm encouraged. I see his, as we saw this morning, I see how good he is as a shepherd. Not just skillful, but he is good. He is upright. He is tender. He is noble. He is admirable. He is worthy. He is lovely beyond all measure. There was a quote that I I didn't use this morning. Um, a quote from uh, a man called John Brown. Oh, what must Christ be in himself when he sweetens heaven? Sweetens scripture, sweetens worship, sweetens earth, and sweetens even trials. Oh, what must Christ be in himself? If his presence makes all those things sweet, what on earth must he be like? Himself. How unutterably lovely. Any wonder Solomon would say prophetically, he is altogether lovely. It's not a chore to focus on him. Keep your eyes on him. Fix your gaze on him. Keep your focus on him. Not all the other stuff that's gone on. Keep lean. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. What is holding you back in the Christian life? Is it a love of comfort, ease, fear, doubt? What sins cause you to trip up in the Christian life? Keep lean. Throw them off. I wonder... As we read this, 
if the particular sin that he's thinking of is doubt. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles. There's a particular sin is troubling these people. They're doubting the promises. They're doubting that God is at work. And the writer says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Don't doubt it, you say. And certain of what we do not see. Now that's interesting, is it not? I don't think that that's certain of what we do not see is, yes, there's heaven is coming. That's what we hope for. But the certain of what we do not see, I think referring to now, there are realities about now that we don't see but are nonetheless real. And we need to be certain about them. Certain that you are adopted and loved. Certain that you are forgiven and justified. Certain that the Holy Spirit is working in you. You can't see it. Throw off the unbelief and the doubt. Cast it aside. The writer saying, throw off the sin that so easily entangles. That, that sense of pervasive disbelief in the realities of God working in our lives. Throw it off. He says, get rid of it. It's a sin. He says, get rid of it. It's entangling you. How can you keep going with faith if your legs are tied together with unfaith? With disbelief. How can you keep believing when you're hamstrung by unbelief? Keep lean. Throw off everything that hinders. I need to be careful. That doesn't mean that we get rid of circumstances. It's Sometimes the, the circumstances that God has given to us are the course that we run on. They're the track that he's given us to run on. They're part of life that we're to live in and run in. But there are things in us and about us that we are called to cast aside. And then thirdly, keep on running. Maybe maybe that second point is something that you feel you've done and you've you are you are doing and you think, well, how am I to do more of that? I don't know what more I'm to throw off in my life. Yes, we're not perfect yet, but but that may not be the particular challenge that you're to focus on. Maybe the particular challenge for you is just to keep on running. To run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Sometimes we can just grind to a halt in the Christian life. Or at least grind to a very slow forward motion. And we need to be encouraged to run. It may not be very fast running. Some boys at the end of that race, they're not running by anything that we would ever call running. But as far as they're concerned, they're running because they've done, I don't know what it is, something like 176 uh, is that, uh, kilometers. We'll say kilometers, it might even be miles. You know, and they're, they're coming to the Hindu Garden at the end, you know, and they're, they're running now. Any of us could run past them and think, you know, that's not running. But 
they have done something that you or I haven't done. And they are running. And sometimes that's what the Christian life's like. Keep running. It may be one step after the other, but keep at it. Keep going. It may be It may be that, that we might make the mistake of thinking that the Christian life happens without effort. No. We're to run with perseverance. We're to keep on believing and keep on persevering. As we thought the other night, we're not running the race in vain. So keep on going. Those moments we're tempted to give up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And he's already past the finishing line, enjoying the prize, saying, I've got some here for you. Keep going. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ruth, Hannah, Mary, Martha, Esther are at the finish line. And they're saying, come on, keep coming. We're not starting the party until you get here. Because that's what God says in verse 40 of chapter 11. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Incredible. So let's keep on believing. And let's keep on going. Believing that God can and will work in us and through us and around us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. He doesn't specify what we're weary with or burdened by. It might be sin. might be life. might be the endless back to the start of here we go with another Monday and the same old stuff and the laundry basket that was empty on Friday is now full again and the ironing needs done and the dishes need washed and the animals need fed and it's the same old, same old fix your eyes on Jesus and run with perseverance the race marked out with you. Consider him. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our wonderful Savior. We thank you that he has hacked a course for us, marked out the race we're to run, that he has gone to the end and, as it were, secured the prize and waits for us, but also runs with us. We thank you that already at the finishing line there are a horde of believers from across the world and throughout history, people who are just like us, who are saying, come on, keep going. And we have our Saviour, his arm around us, as it were, running alongside us saying, I've got you. We're in this together. Keep going. The prize awaits. Father, help us in those moments when Satan hurls his fiery arrows of doubt and disbelief and we don't have the shield of faith up and those arrows strike and they hurt and one strikes after another. And one more doubt comes in and one more worry and one more anxiety and one more burden and one more stress lands in and in and in and in. 
and we just feel as if we can't keep going. Lord, help us to keep on fixing our eyes on Jesus, to believe what he has achieved for us, to believe what he is doing in us, even though we can't see it, and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.